Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Steve Gorham, Executive Director, Climate Science Coalition of America, well-known public speaker and author of the new book, Green Breakdown, the coming renewable energy failure. Steve Gorham, thanks for joining us today on The Shilling Show Unleashed. Hey, Rob, great to join you. We're definitely witnessing a transition and a transformation, but I guess the big question that I would have for you to start off is, who is behind the push? It seems to be just coming from everywhere, but really out of nowhere. Well, the, the push is uh, from what I'll call climatism. And by the way, we have a couple of presidential candidates now using that term, uh, both Mr. Trump and Mr. Ramaswamy. Mm-hmm. And it's driving uh, most of the energy policy in the wealthy nations of the world, including uh, what's coming from uh, President, Ob- uh, President uh, Biden and his organization. So that is what is uh, is driving most of the states and many of the utilities. And we're, we're trying to make this uh, big energy transition, which really is, A, not going to have much effect on the climate. And B, it's going to be very expensive for people uh, the farther it goes along. So uh, it is a serious situation in that regard. Steve, what are the goals, the ultimate goals of this transition that they're pushing for? In other words, what do they want to say is going to happen and what are they really pushing for? Because I I think there's something more nefarious behind all of this. The drive is for net zero, so-called net zero. Net zero means uh, net zero carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, the goal is to do this by 2050. Uh, when we burn any sort of fuel, we emit carbon dioxide. Actually, when people exhale, we exhale about two pounds a day of carbon dioxide. So it's very much part of life. But the, the goal of the energy transition is to first eliminate almost all of the carbon dioxide that's emitted from industry or transportation or homes. or And whatever we can't eliminate, they want to try and capture it, so-called uh, carbon dioxide capture and storage. This is more than a reach-out goal. This is really a wish and a prayer. It's an impossible dream. Uh, Nevertheless, the world is spending about a trillion dollars a year right now on renewables uh, with the uh, idea that they can stop the planet from warming if if we spend all this money. But that's neither supported by science nor is net zero supported by any sort of economics. We seem to have, over the past several decades, lived in the golden age of inexpensive, reliable, abundant energy And yet a lot of people don't realize how important that is to our way of life. And maybe you could give us just a a few points about why that's important. Our society is based on the burning of hydrocarbon fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. And then if you, you add nuclear to that, those are the things that drive our modern society. Everything from powering hospitals to creating your cell phone to uh, hydrocarbons also uh, produce your clothes, your shoes. Uh, they produce our fertilizer. 50% of the world's food output uses synthetic fertilizer that is produced from natural gas or coal. 
So all of these things drive our society. Probably the best correlation for world gross domestic product growth is the rise in uh, hydrocarbon fuel use. Uh, but we have uh, many people trying to, to push for net zero now, and they're saying we should replace all of our uh, our utilities with uh, wind and solar. We should replace our gasoline fuel with biofuels. Uh, we should try and do something called a hydrogen economy to uh, power our steel mills and many other areas. These things are very unproven, very expensive, and not likely to occur in any case. But uh, wherever they're implemented, it, it means uh, higher prices and blackouts and, and other problems for uh, people. We've long heard about the potential of nuclear power. In fact, I think in the book there was a prediction that we would be running 50% on nuclear power by around this time. It didn't happen. Yeah. Is, there right. new, is there new nuclear technology that we should be paying attention to, and how does it differ from the traditional nuclear technology? Well, nuclear has been touted by many as a solution, both because it doesn't emit carbon dioxide and it, it has very high energy density. The problem with nuclear is the cost of it right now. And much of that is due to, to the regulation uh, that are be, being imposed by the nuclear regulatory uh, group. And so nuclear is, is, is very expensive right now. Now, as you say, there are a number of new technologies that they're putting into place or trying to. Uh, smaller modular reactors done, uh, would be manufactured sort of on an assembly line to try and bring the cost down. There are molten salt reactors. There are other things that, that people are, are trying to put into place to bring the cost down. We do need technological breakthroughs to uh, make nuclear cost effective with gas again. So we hope that's going to occur in the future here. But uh, right now, globally, uh, nuclear has been actually de declining as a percentage of our electricity. It was about, in the 1990s, about 17% of global electricity. Now it's down to about 10%. So I do hope we get some breakthroughs. We need some breakthroughs for nuclear uh, energy. And uh, then uh, if we can gain those, we'll, we will put more of that in place, help provide low-cost energy for people across the world. To what extent do you think Fukushima and uh, Chernobyl have played into this fear, I think, that accompanies uh, nuclear power? Yeah, there have been some of those. We had Three, three Mile Island in the 70s. We had Chernobyl uh, shortly after that in Russia. There were actually people who died in Chernobyl from radiation poisoning. In 2011, we had the Fukushima disaster in Japan where... Uh, Huge tidal wave, unexpected from an earthquake, washed over a nuclear plant and caused uh, the core to actually melt. Uh, there was radiation released, but I don't think they have any cases of, of people dying from radiation. Meltdown and radiation are concerns for nuclear. I think they've been the biggest issue with why nuclear hasn't expanded. But if you look overall, the industry is very, very safe. Uh, there are fewer deaths, uh, industrial deaths from nuclear than, than from coal or, or wind or any other source of, of energy. Uh, the new technologies, I think, for example, molten salt uh, designs, I think, are designed to shut down automatically. So you wouldn't have a problem with the core overheating. Uh, we certainly need those new technologies to take over as well. Uh, but again, every energy source has issues. You know, wind turbines kill a million birds a year in the United States. Uh, we have particulate matter from, from coal plants. We really need to do the balance of what's positive and what's negative on both sides. And nuclear has many positives. I'd like to talk about the concept of renewable energy, which is featured in the title of your book, Steve. And first of all, what is renewable energy and is this a misnomer? Yeah, it is a little bit of a misnomer. The renewable idea is that we can 
like the sun, we can get energy from the sun and it, it continues to always be there or from the wind. Uh, or if it's, if it's uh, biofuels from plant matter, you can regrow the plants. So they've coined this phrase renewable, which really, it sounds very good. <laughs> it's publicly been accepted, but it really doesn't mean a whole lot. For one single example, uh, when I speak to groups, I talk about, uh, so which do you think is, is a more environmentally friendly energy source? A power plant that uses one unit of land or a power plant that uses 100 units of land to produce the same output? And the, the answer should be obvious. But when you look at it, uh, nuclear, coal, and natural gas are all at the one unit of output per land. And wind and solar at, are at 100 units of land to produce the same output. You need vast amounts of land to generate electricity with wind and solar. And if not for the fear of man-made global warming, they would, consider, they would be considered very environmentally unfriendly. So renewable is, is, is a nice uh, public and, and political phrase in many ways, but you really have to look at the costs and benefits of, of each energy source and also the reliability, which is a very, very big factor. In the book, you have some interesting history about the driver toward renewable energy, and you talk about the oil embargo of 1973, and then there were some further increases around 1980. That had a huge impact on the world economy and, of course, was the uh, pushing for initial solar systems and even some wind power. The rise of renewables came out of a couple things from about 1950 to 1970. One was, as you say, the uh, world oil shocks in the 1970s, at that time, uh, oil used to be priced about uh, $13 a barrel or so and rose up to higher than 30 and 40 Gasoline went way, way up. And so the nations looked for some other energy sources, and they decided to start uh, using wind and solar, and there was a big push for biofuels as well. Uh, energy acts were uh, passed in the United States to uh, promote biofuels and subsidize them. We also had, in the 50s and 60s, uh, the environmental groups, uh, who originally were, were worried about conservation and protecting wildlife, started to uh, promote renewables uh, with the idea that they could replace coal, oil, and gas. And then in 1988, we had the uh, 89, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, said the earth was warming, humans were causing it. And so that third big driver was the driver for renewables. And by the way, we solved the first two problems. Uh, we didn't run out of uh, oil and gas. We had the fracking revolution in the United States, and we became the world's biggest producer of, of oil and gas. Uh, we also, our air got very, very clean. According to Environmental Protection Agency data, our uh, major pollutants in air, such as carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides, uh, sulfur dioxide particulates, down about 70% combined since uh, 1980. So long before we started putting uh, wind and solar in, the two main problems, the, the thought that we were running out of oil and gas, and second, that we needed to clean up our air, those problems were largely solved. But now the world is driving for renewables based on the incorrect idea that we're causing uh, human-caused global warming. That's what's driving everything forward today. One of the great points that you make in the book, amongst many, Steve, is that these green policies are all requiring coercion of some sort, which tells me that they're not market-driven. So why is something that's supposedly so good requiring people to be coerced? Well, that is a big, a big issue, and people don't really realize it, but 
But we are in, we've got three big things going on right now that are going to impact every citizen. The first is in May, the EPA put out uh, carbon pollution standards for power plants. Those are not yet adopted, but uh, the basic idea here is that you'd have to get rid of all of your coal plants or capture the carbon dioxide from them. We have many, many states. We get about 20% of our power from coal in the United States, about 40% from natural gas. In Virginia, for example, you get about 50% of our electricity from gas, 37% from nuclear, 4% from coal, so just about 90% from traditional sources. This pollution standard will force many, many states and utilities to close their coal plants, basically, because carbon capture is, is really too expensive to be practical. The second major area is that the Department of Energy is putting standards in place for gas stoves. To the extent that those are adopted, about 50% of the gas stoves on the market today will not be able to be there anymore. They're going to disappear. So there's, there's regulations there. A third big area, of course, is what the Environmental Protection Agency is doing with carbon dioxide emission standards for vehicles and also mileage standards for vehicles. And the push there is to get everybody to buy an electric car. And we're on the road for it to be impossible for any car manufacturer to produce a line of gasoline or diesel cars within about 10 years. They will not be able to meet the standards by any sort of a mix. And so the current government is going to force people to buy an electric vehicle. You know, that's not something I want to do. I, my wife and I, as I mentioned, have a, have a home in Chicago and a home in Virginia Beach, and we drive that uh, back and forth every year. If we had an electric vehicle, we could go 300 miles, but then to do another 100 miles, we'd have to charge for a half hour to an hour. It would take us three days to make the trip, which we do in about a day and a half now. This idea that people have to be forced to adopt these things to save the planet, that's where the problem comes in. We should be allowing people to choose. If they want an electric vehicle and there are advantages for electrics, uh, they can go do that. If they want a traditional vehicle, they should be able to do that as well. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with Steve Gorham and the Green Breakdown in just a moment. Support this podcast online at shillingshow.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. That's Shillingshowmedia.com. Looking out for us. Rob Schaub. Steve Gorm is our guest here on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. The book is Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. I'd like to talk a little bit more about electric vehicles since we're on the subject here, and it's fascinating to me. Uh, One of the great concerns I have is that this is just a move to control people's ability to move themselves and be mobile in the United States of America in particular, where we have wide-ranging land and big highways. Do you see this as a control mechanism that people could just be turned off if perhaps they had the wrong social profile? It seems that way. 
Uh, certainly, we've seen in, in nations that have adopted electric vehicles, the amount of, of uh, cars sold has gone down. We've seen that in a number of, of markets in Europe. Uh, mileage that people drive with electrics is lower. The, uh, the uh, University of Chicago did a survey of all the California owners of electric vehicles a couple of years ago, and they found that the average electric vehicle was driven 5,500 miles a year. Most of those vehicles in California are second cars. They're, they're relying on their other car whenever they have to make a long trip or something else. I, you know, I don't believe overall in a, in a um, conspiracy to control people in that regard. Uh, we do have many people announcing that people should stop driving. They should only be using public transportation. There, there is a segment of society doing that. I do think the basis is the fear that humans are causing dangerous climate change. The idea is that electric vehicles over their lifetime emit uh, less greenhouse gases. They actually, when you initially buy them, it takes a lot more uh, uh, emissions to uh, produce an electric vehicle than a gasoline car. But over uh, five or 10 years, uh, the emissions will be lower. So I think that really is the big driver. And because electrics cost typically 50% more than a traditional gasoline car, governments, A, have to subsidize those in a very big way. And B, we have uh, about seven states now that have passed projected mandates to eliminate gasoline vehicles by the year uh, 2035 or so. So again, the, the mandate uh, seems to have to be there to get people to switch. And uh, that's not good for folks. That's not something that's going to help them or uh, help them grow their families or prosper. And I should say that Virginia, which is where our broadcast emanates from, is one of the states we put in legislation a couple of years ago to follow the lead of California of all places. Now, there's some, there's some big issues with EVs. The, the biggest advantage is you can charge at home, and that can be inexpensive and also uh, very easy for people to do. But if you need to go out and charge at a public charger, that's very, very uh, problematic. It takes a long time, typically half hour to an hour, depending on what kind of charger you have. It can be more expensive, typically more expensive than a gasoline car. Another thing is that EVs are much heavier than, they're about 50% heavier than a gasoline car. It's amazing when you look at pickups, mm -hmm. <laughs> what's going on. Ford F-150 gasoline vehicle is a heavy vehicle. It's about 4,600 and 4,700 pounds. But if you look at the electrics that are coming out, Ford F-150 Lightning EV is 6,500 pounds. The new Tesla EV pickup truck is about 8,000 pounds. And the Chevy Silverado EV is 8,500 pounds. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if, if Captain Clint from uh, Jaws were on the show, he'd go four tons of it, he would he'd say. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a four-ton vehicle. So these things are going to be paying more road taxes, and eventually they're going to be more expensive to drive if, if they're balanced equally. Uh, there are disadvantages. Another thing is cold weather. I was at a conference a year ago, talked to a guy. His wife had a Tesla EV. They lived in Cleveland. And the temperature got down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit in the middle of the winter, and the vehicle literally would not charge at that temperature. Uh, you have to have a heated garage if you want to charge your vehicle in the winter if it's an electric vehicle. So there are a number of disadvantages. And, uh, again, people ought to have a choice. If an EV fits for them, that's great. If not, they should be able to drive gasoline vehicles rather than being forced to uh, go to an electric vehicle. There are some other issues I want to bring up regarding EVs because this is so important, especially with the push that's going on. So one of them is the fires and explosions and uh, these batteries that are dangerous to transport, even small ones. So they always put a warning label on the box that the cars yeah. have been exploding. Also, 
people have been warned against keeping them in garages. I mean, there seems to be some instability here with these batteries. Well, they're very high energy density, not as high as gasoline, by the way, but and they do they do tend to burn up. We had uh, General Motors uh, recall 240,000 uh, Chevy uh, volts to uh, fix battery problems. And there are all kinds of stories. Near Chicago here, there's a suburb called uh, Elk Grove. The guy was driving his Tesla and it started to vibrate. He pulled over on the side of the expressway and it burst into flames. And in the back seat, he had two child seats, which he couldn't get out. He was just so happy his children weren't with him when this car burst into flames. We had another woman who uh, got a loaner, I think it was a Mercedes-Benz in Florida, brought it home from the vehicle while her other vehicle was being fixed, put it in the garage, and the thing erupted in flames sitting in the garage. It wasn't being charged or anything. It damaged the whole rest of her house with smoke. So there are a bunch of issues with, with these things. We have also have uh, a bunch of lithium batteries on bicycles in New York City. There have been a, a number of fires, and I think 18 people have died in this last year from bicycle fires in New York City that have caught on fire and burned up apartments and things. People need to look at the pros and cons. I think they're going to solve these problems eventually, but there are fire problems with with electric vehicles that we don't see in, in gasoline cars. There was recently, within the past couple of days, the announcement that a huge discovery of lithium in the western part of the United States was announced. Yeah. And so I guess the question I have is, will the environmentalists let us mine the lithium here in this country, or is that just a pipe dream? Well, that's another thing, too. If we move to this uh, transition, energy transition, we're going to move from what, what people say is an energy-intensive society to a materials-intensive society. Uh, the International Energy Agency points out that it takes six times the special metals, six times more in an electric vehicle than in a gasoline vehicle. Mm. Uh, you need lithium, cobalt, nickel, and copper. Uh, these metals are typically not mined in the U.S. Most of them are mined in uh, in Australia and in develop and in developing nations. And much of the processing for metals is done in China. So, for example, in cobalt, the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa is the biggest producer mining producer of cobalt in the world. They they do about 35 percent of the world's cobalt. And they are infamous for, for their mining practices. Uh, they're using forced labor and they're using child labor. So when that cobalt ore is mined, it's shipped to China where it's processed. And then uh, they pollute the land in China. There's a place called Rare Earth Lake that literally is square miles of polluted land. And then once that metal is, is refined, it's sent to the United States so that people can drive Teslas. But nobody in the United States sees the social and environmental damage of the mining uh, from these EVs overseas. So it, it is a pretty big issue. And uh, the more that we, we try and make this transition to EVs and wind turbines and, and solar cells, the more issues we're going to have with mining and the resultant environmental damage from those. Steve, it seems to me that there is a sweet spot somewhere in the middle, which is the hybrid vehicle. They're becoming more popular. And I've also heard a couple manufacturers say they're really going to focus on hybrid vehicles because the EV switchover has not been easy for them. So are hybrids a good answer to the question? Yeah, I think they are. I think they're, they get kind of the advantage of both with a hybrid. You get uh, a very high driving mileage for for short trips, and you get the convenience of using gasoline for a longer trip. Uh, so I think hydro hybrids are a good mix. But the again, the leaders of the world are pushing to eliminate 
mm-hmm. anything with a gasoline engine inside. So that that would include a hybrid. That is, uh, and again, it's 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 almost an irrational craze in many many ways. But uh, and you're right, there are some auto manufacturers that have said, hey, we're going to concentrate a little more on hybrids. There have been recent announcements on that, and I think that is that's a good thing. Again, we need to get back to uh, sensible. Uh, science and economics away from the the uh, theory of human-caused warming and try and get back to what works for, for society. So you talk about the theory, and I agree with you, this is a theory, and yet this is a, treated as fact. There are people who say that, quote-unquote, the science is settled or the consensus of scientists say such and such. Let's talk briefly just about a couple of the top fictions regarding climate change. Some real simple things to understand. First off, Today's climate is not particularly warm. We've had only one degree Celsius of temperature rise since 1880, 140 years, about two degrees Fahrenheit. There is much, much geological evidence that it was warmer in the past. A thousand years ago, uh, when the Vikings settled southwest Greenland, 2,000 years ago, when the the Mediterranean was conquered by Roman soldiers, at that time they were growing olives in, in central Germany. 4,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, all of these periods were a century or longer, and it was warmer than it is today. Second, if you look at the greenhouse effect, you find that uh, human emissions of carbon dioxide are a very, very small fraction of it. Uh, most of the greenhouse effect, which is blamed for global warming, is caused by water vapor and clouds, about 70 to 90 percent. And then natural emissions of carbon dioxide are much bigger than industrial emissions. Uh, it's very unlikely that uh, humans are going to have, uh, with, all, with spending a trillion dollars a year and more, is going to have a measurable effect on global temperatures. Uh, again, that's a, probably a uh, topic for another episode with us. In any case, we're going to have a coming green breakdown. Uh, we're going to have higher energy and electricity prices. We're going to have electricity blackouts as more wind, intermittent wind and solar is put into place. Uh, this drive for getting rid of people's car and stove choices, uh, forcing them to go to electrics instead of gas or, or gasoline. And then we're going to have uh, global energy shocks like we did in Europe over the last two years. Uh, people are going to say, hey, enough of this. They're going to demand a return to low-cost, reliable energy. And that's what uh, my book, Green Breakdown, is about. So I want to just go to that finally, Steve, because I sense that there are going to be states with the patriotic governors who are looking out for their own interests and they will come up with an alternative or parallel system to uh, federal mandates. Do you see a coming clash between states, some states and the federal government? Well, we have uh, many of those going on right now. The, the EPA's carbon pollution standards for power plants uh, proposal is being sued by a number of states, probably 20. We have uh, all sorts of state pushbacks. If you look at the central part of the country, coal is is the biggest power for for many of those states, and they have very low-cost electricity prices. Uh, There is this battle that's going on, but again, the states that put in a lot of green energy, California for one, California's electricity prices are up 70% in the last 14 years. They passed up everybody except Hawaii. They're the number two in in the nation for electricity prices. And where you put in this wind and solar, the evidence shows that your electricity gets a lot more expensive. And I'm concerned about uh, Virginia wanting to put in a bunch of offshore wind, which is going to be very, very expensive and may not uh, survive once we get a hurricane come by. Uh, not a good sign for the ratepayers. Again, people need to educate themselves. They can do that with Green Breakdown. 
They can get it on Amazon. There are ebooks available or from my website, Steve Gorham, G-O-R-E-H-A-M.com, and I'll send them a signed copy. I've read the book, and it's a remarkable and easy-to-digest breakdown of all the things that are going on in the renewable energy failure. Steve Gorham, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you, Rob. Always at your service. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.